Welcome to Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Stories We Don't Tell is a monthly event in Toronto that features candid stories of strength and resilience. I threw out my prayers, they went flying like balloons. And God caught on gothic ceilings, the most ornate in the world. What a sight, what a privilege to feel those heights. But my prayer stayed up there spinning. The air whipped our hair, we went shooting down the valley. Knuckles gripped upon the handles, shivers rushing down my spine. What's a blind always comes at the most frightening time to make sure you won't forget. My mind has learned to tune things out long ago. Things normally felt wrong with this guy, but today something felt different. Something felt wronger than usual. Something drags me back to the present and I remember we're in my mom's room. I slide off my mom's bed, pushing him off to a slightly agitated protest, and I make my way to the bathroom. Fuck. The dead weight of my stomach crashes through the floor. It's broken. My voice echoes off the tiles. I feel him come join me, give me some consoling motions. I get a hug. I get some murmured assurances of how okay everything is going to be. But I know that his anger and his loneliness make him need his own family. I know that the screaming of this need will soon drown out his whispered attempts at comfort. Mostly, I know that I cannot fulfill his need. But now, knowing that his anger and loneliness might stir otherwise, I see him again the next day. And it's been this way for the two months that we've been dating, me 15, him 21, that I have found myself inexplicably acquiescing to his need to see me every day. Every day. We met in a dank basement room at a Korean karaoke bar at Young and Finch at a friend's friend's party. He had noticed my knockoff rhinestone Playboy bunny necklace and wore things like grills. School wasn't even a part of his vocabulary and he described my part-time job as cute, like a hobby I chose to have. He was my opposite and I thought I needed that. My life had taken a full 180. My dad's arrest blurring with my sudden move to Toronto. My picturesque street morphing into a shelter, a counselor's office, a police station. I could not even distinguish my mom's sadness from my sister's confusion, my own sense of loss. But there I was, a star student, smiling face, Fuck all of that. I buried that stuff deep down, away from the life I lived, away from myself. And was left with this guy. In his baggy jeans and his blue do-rag. 
<laughs> I didn't care. Rolling around town, stealing car rims from parking lots, smoking up in boiler rooms and underground garages. I never cared. Waiting around when they went on missions for his, him and his crew to come back from whatever bullshit they were doing. I didn't care that I was hiding. I care now though. Alone in the Pharma Plus, staring at the pregnancy test, sitting there between the condoms and the diapers. I care now, standing in the pungent public bathroom in the Centerpoint Mall with my best friend. Together we stare as the two sticks lay on a pristine bed of toilet paper. The symbols screaming, you're pregnant, boring the words through my skull. I drink an apple juice and I go home. Five weeks later, we walk through Danzu Station. The walls close in on me with every plea that comes out of his mouth. Every face turns towards me, echoing his why nots and his slow downs, scattering onto the linoleum floor, bouncing off the walls, multiplying in the stale air, but I don't care. Today I'm on the mission and nothing's going to stop me. He is livid. Cannot understand how I could possibly deny him of the right to his own family. He had told me about the girl before me who had did this exact same thing to him and even admitted he had never felt that kind of pain. I know how much he could hurt me and I don't care. Pissing him off even more. Don't you get what you're doing to me? He can feel my retort about to slice right through him, but he pushes on. I won't come with you. What are you going to do then? I turn around in a blazing fury. Fine. What the fuck makes you think I need you? I storm down the stairs, and he stands there at the threshold of his nightmare. But the fear of losing me? The fear of losing a chance at happiness drives him to follow me. He makes the train just as the door slams shut and we ride the three stops in silence. He puts his arm around me and I tense up but I can't shake it off. When we get there we, stand, we sit in the waiting room for a long time and when I finally disappear behind that closed door he sits restlessly, not knowing what I'm going through, but wondering how the hell it can take so long. I stumble out, shaky and pale, and he tells me that he called his parents for a ride. I see him bite his anger back when I barely acknowledge him. We stand in the shadows, motionless, of the huge concrete building until his father's truck pulls up to the curb. Fumes sputtering out, a Catholic cross sticker peeling off with age. He looks out the window, lost in his own thoughts. While his father lectures me about morality, God, what's right, what's wrong, while I close my eyes. And his mother sits there quietly in the passenger seat.
A week later, we stand outside a grimy country style. He is out of breath after unleashing another monologue about how we were meant to be together. Oblivious to my relief when I see the promising blue flash of the 36 bus coming my way. It's over. I have said these words dozens of times in the past few days, but he still can't hear them. His mind had learned to tune uncomfortable things out a long time ago. So we just heard Aaron Kang's story from the very first Stories We Don't Tell, and I am sitting here with Aaron now, and we're going to talk about it. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Brianne. <laughs> uh, so this was a piece that you brought to our essay group that you had actually written a long time ago. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the history of this story for you? Sure. Um, I did write about it a long time ago in high school after it happened. Um, but never did it for a purpose. Uh, it was just to get it out. I, as I mentioned in the story, could only tell three people, uh, none of which were my sister, who I tell everything to. So writing was my way of getting it all out. It was in a very different format, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very interesting to have to revisit it and work through it again. Mm -hmm. And how did you find the process of going from something that you wrote for yourself, really, to process to something that you were going to stand up and read in front of maybe some strangers, a room, a room full of strangers? Mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, the first part of my process was forgetting that the audience would be there. Mm -hmm. um, when I, when I considered it as a story that I was going to share publicly, I started getting into a mindset of, oh, this is a story that I need to share. Um, what do I tell the audience? Am I conveying all the right feelings? Am I conveying all of the events that happened? Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, there's the aspect of sharing this incredibly personal thing yeah, that course. happened uh, to people who I might not know. Right. So... I mean, a big part of writing is the thinking. So I had to first sit through all of my memories. And, and I even looked through my 16-year-old my Facebook self. Wow. Uh, which was very strange, <laughs> to say the least. Who was, we hope, very different. Not, not like in an insulting way, just I hope we're all very different than our 16-year-old selves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine years can change a lot. <laughs> um, so it was actually, it was almost like reliving it again. Mm-hmm. I had to be very honest with myself if I was hoping to share a story honestly with an audience. Mm -hmm. And that meant taking away all of the justifications, all of the excuses I had made in my mm -hmm. head, um, all of the reasons I did not share it before. Oh, I might you know, get a negative opinion or people might think differently about me. I needed to strip all of that away. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the hardest part. Yeah. Did you find, so I know you went through, as we do every time, a lot of drafts for this. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if the first version was in the third person, but I know that you had written through a couple different variations where you talked about both of you in the third person, and you were kind of trying to, to present both perspectives, yours and the 
the gentlemen's, mm-hmm. we'll say, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, both of your perspectives at once, and you were working through a third person version of that, and then you switched to first person. Um, did that, like, that switch to first person come with any different challenges, or did you find yourself separated? I don't know. I think there are a lot of versions of this question. Whatever version of this question you want to answer. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, the switch, I actually intended to present it in the third person at the show. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, I I felt that it would do a better job at showing my side of the story and also uncovering uh, Dan's character, who is the man I mentioned in the story. <laughs> the gentleman. The gentleman. Um and I actually made the switch to first person after somebody recommended to it, uh, mm-hmm. me to it um, during our, our writing group. Mm-hmm. And my fear was that it would feel too personal, that it would feel, which is funny because we're sharing this right. incredibly personal <laughs> thing. But even that small thing, that it's, small... It's realer. Mm-hmm. That's not a word. It's more real. It can be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I actually even thought it would take away from the weight of the story a little bit hmm. if I made it an I thing Um, but then when I rewrote it in the I it felt a lot more real Mm -hmm. um, and I felt less of an impetus to have to explain Dan I could just focus on me and that was an important shift and when you say explain Dan do you you mean try to represent his perspective yeah I mean I think it's two things the first was to accurately portray the kind of person that he was Mm -hmm. without going into a long description or sharing a story of his that is not mine to share right so that was the first challenge Um, And then the second was actually his perspective of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, this is a very different story than it was for him. Sure. And I wanted to be able to show that. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of show that you you could tell that he was experiencing a very different range of feelings, but but you don't actually know what those were or where they were rooted. You just had these observations. Like at the end, you talk about being in the truck with his parents Mm -hmm. and it's like, that's some context, but you still, you can only really know how that felt for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you made that change. Um, So another question I have, two more questions that I have that are related um, is in telling this story, you mentioned this a little bit about the, the shift that you did and wanting to try somehow to let go of worrying about what the audience thinks about you. Were you worried about in this culture where abortion can be a really hard thing to talk about? What what would the implications be of getting in front of getting up in front of a room full of people and saying like I am a person who has had an abortion and I'm standing here right now telling you about it? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. the The distance that is put between myself now writing the story and sharing the story and myself when I was experiencing it. Mm-hmm. You know, when it happened, I just, I moved very quickly on back into my life at high school, um, work, school, and I never gave myself the room to think about it, except for sometimes in March, Mm -hmm. when it happened, I would think, oh, I might have a five-year-old right now, or I might have a seven-year-old right now. And Mm -hmm. those thoughts would cross my mind, but I never sat in it until I started writing through. And as I started writing the story, I realized how I truly felt that this choice that I made was right for me. Mm-hmm. And the big conflict around this situation that happened was the fact that 
he refused to accept that. Mm -hmm. It could have been a completely different situation. It could have been a supportive and loving situation. Sure. But the fact was that he invalidated what I wanted. Right. And the years that I had to um, sit in that for showed me how wrong that was and Mm -hmm. how much it stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something I really learned through the story that I didn't take away from the experience before. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to coming up and sharing this in front of 50 people, I thought it was actually just important Mm -hmm. to get these kind of narratives out there because it is a taboo subject. It's not talked about. When I first brought this draft to our writing group, you know, some of our of our men in the group were were remarking how important it is to share the story. How could anyone argue with you? Look at your situation. Mm-hmm. And I remember you and I were like, no, this is this is it. I mean, I think the statistics are what like one in every three women will have an abortion. Yeah. And we don't hear that many abortion stories. Absolutely. We hear very few. Uh, so another question that I have that's really related to what I was just saying is, and I don't, this might not have even been where your head was at the time, but did you feel any pressure to, this is really similar to what I asked, but with a twist, mm-hmm. um, did you feel any pressure to be telling like the right abortion story? So what I, I'll clarify a little what I mean by that. Just that, you know, abortion, because it's theoretically not up for debate in Canada, but it's up for debate everywhere in the States and in the culture in general, mm-hmm. like what you end up hearing is this kind of hair splitting around choice, like, well, I'm I'm not in favor of abortion unless mm-hmm. dot dot dot, mm-hmm. and then that unless can become a broader and broader category. So it could be, except for in the case of you know rape, but it could be except for in the case of teenagers who can't handle it yet, or except for in the case of dot dot dot. Mm-hmm. So did you feel any pressure around the story that you were telling and how it would fit into that, like the the good abortion story? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do, and it's so unfortunate that that mm-hmm. has to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that I don't think I felt a pressure to share the right story. I don't think there's such thing as a right story. No, I know you agree. Um, but I did feel a fear that some people might take it as a preaching type mm-hmm. of story mm-hmm. um, in however way they might take that. Sure. Um, my decision may not resonate with everyone. Of course not. Mm-hmm. But I think the more different types of stories around abortion and choice come out, the blurrier this right, I used air quotes just there, (laughs) this right version of an abortion story would be. Mm -hmm. So um, hopefully this is one of many that we can hear in the future um, where we can begin exploring what that is and bringing it you know, higher into people's consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm so curious about that that thing of, of being conscious of the story that you're telling um, because we talked about this at, the, at our workshop on Saturday, actually, mm-hmm. for the next event, that, like, nobody nobody's story for stories we don't tell is a PSA. Mm-hmm. So, actually, I hope that, but I, it doesn't matter. Like, I hope that nobody ever feels like they're telling the abortion story Mm -hmm. or the coming out story or Mm -hmm. whatever because you're only the only thing that you can do is tell your own story but with some topics like this I feel like it it, it's almost unavoidable that a small part of your brain at least would say you know people are going to look at this people who haven't heard a story about this before this is going to be the story for them Mm -hmm. and um 
I really, I really appreciate what you just said, which is like, you, you still can't. Mm-hmm. None of us can. Yeah, all we can do is just further complicate it and make it not so black and mm-hmm. white. Mm-hmm. And hopefully make it so that other people recognize that these are stories we're allowed to tell, which mm-hmm. is a part of it. Like abortion stories, as, as I'm sure you felt, because I, I can say that. I'm just going to go ahead and divine your feelings. <laughs> but as it sounds like you felt based on the number of years you spent not talking about it. Like, it's a story you're not allowed to tell. Mm-hmm. Does that sound true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, however unintentional it may be, it it is a part of who I am, and that by nature means someone might judge mm-hmm. me for it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then how did you feel afterwards? So I know in the process leading up to it, you kind of... We're, I mean, we're forced to open up about this more and tell people about it because, you know, people are like, what are you telling a story about, mm-hmm. first of all? And then afterwards, you read it, and, like, obviously there were a lot of people that you knew in the room and people you didn't know. So how did you feel when the circle of people who had heard the story went from three to, like, <laughs> exponentially bigger? I mean, I don't know. We had 45 people or 50 people at the first event, mm-hmm. plus whoever would have heard you practicing, plus whoever heard it on the podcast, and then plus whoever heard it at Storyfire, right, right. Uh, the Toronto Storytelling Festival, where you told the story again. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Well, the first time, it felt so liberating. It was our first event. It was mm-hmm. the first time we had done anything like this. So to share even a mundane story would have felt so different yeah. from what you know, our regular days, um, look like. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, you know, our, our audiences are always amazing and there's always a beautiful round of applause after every story. And I remember standing there and thinking, okay, this is something I can celebrate now. This is something that no longer is curdling inside of me. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've put out there and people can take and internalize in however way they want, and it's no longer mine to mm-hmm. to have a burden. And it's no longer your shame. Exactly. Which, not that I think that abortion mm-hmm. is shameful, but mm-hmm. I think that the nature of these stories is that we sometimes carry them around as shame for a long time before writing them. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, it's okay. And I remember our, our mutual friend Noah, who mm-hmm. I went to high school with, right. came up to me and said, this was during high school. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, Noah. Yeah. And he said... I have no, I had no idea you're so happy all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh no, that's my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I had some, some women come up to me after who I did not know and, uh, and they thanked me um, and said that they had not gone through something like that themselves, but that it really, it struck a chord in them and mm-hmm. they have, they have felt uh, in their past times when they have been pressured or where their choice is being called into question. And regardless of whether they were able to relate directly to the story or not, you take something away from it. And mm-hmm. I think that's the core of what we do with stories we don't yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. That it, it just resonates. And I, and I think with with abortion, what I mean, you, you mentioned earlier at the essay group, like men's reactions where it's always, I think men are always a little bit removed from this conversation by the nature of this conversation. And so... It's interesting because for, I don't know, for, for women, I'm just going to speak for all women for a second because <laughs> I think I'm qualified to do that. Like for women, it's the kind of question at the very least that every single one of us has thought about. And even if that means that we have felt fortunate, like I've never, this is a, this is a choice that I've never had to make. And I feel really lucky because I don't know what I would do yet, but it doesn't mean I haven't thought about it. And so getting to hear someone talk about something so heavy 
can be really helpful because what we learn is even in Ontario, which is getting a new sex ed curriculum, Mm -hmm. probably like we learn something relatively neutral on choice. Mm -hmm. We don't learn that we're going to go to hell if we ever make this decision. And we don't see that in the culture as strongly, but it's like we hear so much about it and how terrible it's going to be and how Mm -hmm. we're going to think that it's the biggest mistake of our lives if we find ourselves in this position. Mm -hmm. And, and so hearing hearing somebody talk about it and like seeing that somebody made it to the other side it's like oh wait no 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 that's a lie that the culture is telling us that we actually can let go of for sure Mm -hmm. um i touch on it very briefly in the story but the so after after it happened and after the recovery room um when when his parents come to pick us up and his his father is lecturing me Mm -hmm. um his very catholic family uh who raised let me tell you a straight up gangster mm-hmm. is lecturing me yeah. about my decision. And I think that probably also colored how I carried it after. Yeah. It's so important to remember what influences shaped your decisions. And even something that was so passive as me sort of kind of sitting there in, in their truck and hearing his opinion of what I did, um, that probably prevented me from sharing it with my mom yeah. and sharing it with more of my friends. Um, and even just sitting in it myself after, I did feel ashamed and mm-hmm. I did feel that this was something that I would regret for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. even though I knew when I made the decision that I wouldn't regret it. Mm-hmm. So it was like you had your politics and you had your thought process, but then the first thing that you encountered was... These guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So something that I have found when I, when I work on these stories is that when I'm looking at moments that I'm writing about things that happened before the last three years, which is, I mean, everything. You know, we joke that all of my stories <laughs> take place between when I was 18 and when I was 22. Um, and so they all take place before I had an iPhone, which mm-hmm. maybe would have helped me feel <laughs> less isolated. Um, did you encounter anything that's, that's just different that you look at your 15 16 year old self oh oh i have a great point of reference for this actually so in the movie obvious child um have you ever watched that actually okay so obvious child is a movie about abortion Mm -hmm. uh with gabby hoffman and jenny slate and just you know for everybody this is important uh this is a real question um so in the movie jenny slate who is like 29 maybe 30 uh, gets pregnant, doesn't want to be pregnant, has to ask herself if she wants to have an abortion. And then her best friend is Gabby Hoffman. And Gabby Hoffman is like, yeah, I had an abortion when I was, you know, 15 or 16. And Jenny Slate, who's trying to make a decision for herself, is like, do you regret it? Or do you, like, how do you feel about this choice that you made about yourself then, just to mm-hmm. try to figure it out? And Gabby's like, I just feel so sad for her, for, her, for my 16-year-old self, that she went through that. I just want to give her a hug. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do you... So based on that firsthand knowledge that I have of this, um, <laughs> is there anything that you, that you realize that you know now that you didn't know then or things that you, what would you want to say to your 15, 16 year old self? Oh, so many things. <laughs> so, so many things. Um, but I think the two important ones are, well, the first is personal, which is just that I've looked back on this relationship before and laughed. And mm-hmm. like, ha, 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 that was so funny. What a stupid choice. Why did I date him? Mm-hmm. And I very much brushed it off as, oh, I was just being silly. Mm-hmm. And again, with this distance between, you know, 16-year-old me and now me, um, and this is evident in my story, I talk about how I needed 
to distract myself mm-hmm. and how he was my way of running away from all these other things that were happening in my life. And as you heard, <laughs> that just exacerbates everything that mm-hmm. was happening. And uh, so for me, t- if, I, if I met 15-year-old me, I mean, I'd probably tell her to focus on herself Mm -hmm. because I virtually what I did was I minimized myself to nothing Mm -hmm. I became Dan's girl I was no longer a version of myself who I recognized and I don't think I don't think I fully realized that probably until I started rewriting this story again Mm -hmm. I just saw it as choices that I made that were removed somehow from my life like this funny time Mm -hmm. so that's one thing that's a very just personal thing and then the other thing is my general awareness and education around reproductive rights choice access to sexual education and health Mm -hmm. um as you mentioned health class i mean one our the assignment that i remember is to pick an sti and write a jingle to a popular song oh my god so (laughs) gonorrhea here I go again. What? Yeah, that was health class. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm 15. There really was no choice for me. I knew I couldn't do this. I was, I was working. I was in high school. Yeah. Um, you know, things were hitting the fan between my parents. And I knew that if I, if I had this child and, and went along with Dan's insistence that we start our own family and get right. sucked into uh, that... Hmm. Um, you know, another thing that wasn't in my story was that he also, we were scared that he was going back to jail Mm -hmm. at that time. Hmm. So amidst all that, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing research and I have no idea what's available in my province. I don't know if there's a pill that works after Mm -hmm. a week. Uh, I don't know anything. And it was just after hours of research that I stumbled across the the resources that I did. Mm -hmm. Um, and even to think if this happened three, four years before or if I were still in my hometown of Niagara on the lake I mean yeah there would have been no resource for resources for me right and considering so many of my close friends are from sort of rural areas of, of Canada mm-hmm. where they couldn't have taken a four-stop TTC ride to do this yeah without telling their mom right you know um I mean there is such a big gap in this country of, mm-hmm. of these kinds of, of things. And mm-hmm. that coupled with the conversation happening internationally about abortion, yeah. that's a really scary thing and, yeah. and points more. to even more need for these kinds of things to be shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like access to information plus access to services, which mm-hmm. there's, there's like, it sounds like those are both hurdles. Mm-hmm. Or even support groups after, actually. I, yeah. I I don't think the clinic ever told me of one, and I just kind of went on my merry way. Yeah, so. and you were like, I'll just not think about this yeah. for almost a decade. <laughs> it's the perfect plan. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah, yeah, and now here we are Yeah, talking about it. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing this story, which really is at the tone of the first stories we don't tell, and for come sitting down and talking about it some more. Thank you for letting me talk about it more. Constantly. We'll just constantly (laughs) talk about it. Um, So how can people keep up with you if they want to know more? Well, they can find you on other Stories We Don't Tell recordings on the Open Kwong Door podcast. Yep, that's right. You've been on a few of them. Mm Mm-hmm. 
uh, and on Twitter. Yep, my handle is at e underscore kangster. Mm-hmm. Kang like kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and if you join the Stories We Don't Tell Facebook group, then yeah. you can also find me there. Yeah, and all of our, everyone's links go up there, so mm-hmm. that's perfect. While I wasn't looking, I don't know how I could repay you for the You can find us online at thereapers.org because we are in the life-collecting business. Today's episode of Stories We Don't Tell is brought to you by Thoroughbred. All you need. Thanks to Rayana for the theme music to this podcast. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at rayana.ca. Thank you for listening <laughs> to the Stories You Don't Tell podcast. And your presence